0: Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In today's episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, I sit down with Dr. Amy Shaw. I love having other providers on the show because it allows us to discuss what is challenging for patients in real time. She got her nutrition degree from Cornell, She went on to medical school, did a residency in internal medicine at Harvard, then did a fellowship in allergy and immunology at Columbia University. We had a great conversation, and in this episode, we talked about the connection between the gut, the microbiome, and mood, how what you eat, how the bugs in your belly dictate how you feel. We also discussed the difference between cravings and hunger, and finally, we cover when you should be eating, what you should be eating, to really leverage food for mood and longevity. If you like this episode, please like it, subscribe it. We put out this content for free. Your support means the world to us. Let's dive in. This episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyons Show is brought to you by One Farm. This episode is all about gut health. One Farm makes an amazing bone broth gut health. Product. What I love about this is this is a product that is dedicated to connecting farmers with consumers. They work with over 40 different farms all around the world to get their adaptogens and their herbs. As it relates to gut health, bone broth is a great adjunct to what you're already doing. One farm has been enhanced with other botanicals and adaptogens to help support a healthy microbiome for better gut health, which hopefully means better mood. It's bone broth from grass-fed organic beef. It has garlic and onions in it, organic heirloom garlic, which tastes great. There's also chamomile and marshmallow root, all of which can help your stomach. You add one to two scoops to warm water, and if you are in a hot place like I am, You add it to warm water, and then you can put it in the fridge, and you can drink it for later. It's great in between meals, mild enough flavor. Head on over to onefarm.com this month, which is amazing, you guys. One Farm is offering my listeners a free gut health superfood. So if you are a listener of the show, you get one for free. Head on over to onefarm.com. Use the code LIONGH. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. That's better, H-E-L-P. Why is BetterHelp so amazing? In this episode, we talk all about mood and mood is not something you should really deal with by yourself because if you're like me, if you let your mood go, it'll go for two weeks before you're even addressing whatever that underlying issue is. This is why I love BetterHelp. BetterHelp is online therapy. It offers video, phone, and even live chat only therapy sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera. It is much more affordable than in-person therapy. And let's face it, because of COVID, we've all gone more to computers and it is a bit of a hassle to go to do things in person. It is true. You will be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours, all remote, whether it's video, phone, or live chat. It's amazing. And it's so important to take control of your mental health. My listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash Dr. Lyon. I don't think that there is any time in which we shouldn't be talking about things. If you are feeling down, even if you're feeling great and you have life changes, therapy is something extraordinarily important. Head on over to betterhelp.com slash Dr. Lyon. Dr. Amy Shaw, I'm so grateful you are in a clinic right now, which is uh, so gracious of you to take a time out of your busy day to come and join us on the show. I'm really excited to talk to you. You know, it's not often that I have people talk about books just because, because I want to hear about clinical experience. We want to hear about some of the latest research. And you and I both know that uh, in writing a book, uh, it takes, I don't know how fast of a writer you are, but it took me two years. Yeah. So by the time the information comes out, uh, it's, who knows where it stands, but your book, (laughs) Why Am I So Effing Hungry, is what I believe to be on the forefront because it talks all about the gut microbiome. And um, number one, Dr. Amy Shaw, welcome.
1: Thank you. And And thank you you for saying that because I feel the same way about books. Um, Often by the time you get the book, it's, a two-year-old info. Um, but the cool thing about the gut microbiome is that there's just mounting evidence on so many of the things I was talking about. Like we have new evidence to support a lot of the things we were talking about. Uh, so I feel really excited about the future of this. We're right at the edge of it.
0: Yes, I I, I couldn't agree more. And I wanted to touch a little bit about you, and uh, your background, that's really important for the listener to understand who you are. You have a undergraduate degree in human nutrition. You went to medical school. You then did uh, training in internal medicine and then went on to go into allergy immunology.
1: Uh, Yep. And I had a few research years in between there somewhere. But um, so I definitely, when I see studies, I look at it from both my personal view, but from when I was in the lab, from when I was in fellowship, when I was seeing patients in the clinic. Um, So it's kind of a conglomeration. That's why I love still seeing patients, because even though a lot of what we do is intellectual and dietary and lifestyle based, um, I love to see what you know the real world. Look like what are people struggling with? What are the things that we can help them with? Um, it gives it a, a different perspective.
0: Yeah, and that that's really a beautiful thing. And I and I just want to mention that there's Harvard in that lineup mm-hmm. for where you train. There's Columbia and Cornell, all of which that are individual places that are the best in their field. And and that becomes really critical when we have this conversation as to who we are bringing to the audience. Now let's talk about what is the difference between hunger and cravings? Because ultimately everybody wants to have an optimal body composition.
1: Yes. And everyone wants to be happy. And I think what we don't realize is that food creates mood. Our gut brain connection is responsible for our mood, our metabolism, how we feel, how we look, right? So, um, That's why it's so important to understand the difference. Um, Hunger in its true sense is a biological need for nutrients. Um, We are wired in multiple different ways to make sure that we search for food, that we um, eat food that is nutritious to our body. And of course, we know now that there's lots of problems when you don't do that. Um, So hunger is a true biological need cravings is a whole different pathway cravings is your desire for anything could be food but desire for alcohol desire for uh, drugs it could be desire for gambling it can be good it could be desire for um, getting to the next level in your career so it's based on the dopamine pathway and this dopamine pathway is a strongest driver um, stronger Than any other mechanism in our body to make us do something. Like dopamine will make you get up out of your chair, drive across town, and get that food, drug, item, thing. Um, And there's no other pathway like it.
0: So, the mechanism between that drives craving is actually different than the mechanism, than the physiological mechanism that
1: drives hunger. Absolutely. And that's why it's so confusing to people, because sometimes we are actually craving food um, and we're not needing those biological nutrients. And I give people the exact example of processed food. Um, You know, you could have eaten a full day of nutrient rich food. Um, You could be completely full and um, but you could still, you know, sit down for a movie late at night and then want to eat snacks um, I want to eat ice cream I want to eat dessert and that's your dopamine pathway seeking that um, comfort rather than the hunger pathway
0: and can you just touch very briefly uh, a broad overview of the hunger pathway of some of just the physiological drivers of hunger what happens in the body
1: yeah so there's a few multiple different ways because our body I mean this is an essential need right food feeding, is an essential need for survival so we have lots of different reminders um, in our body to um, eat food so one of the pathways is your hunger hormones your hunger hormones like ghrelin a lot of people know ghrelin which is a hormone that gets released and it makes you hungry and ghrelin is released in a cyclical pattern and it's a reminder because your body does not want you to forget to eat for days, even though we can physiologically go for days, weeks, actually months without food. Um, it doesn't want you to do that. It's a lot of stress on the body. And so we have um, hormonal pathways. We have neuronal pathways. So brain and um, vagus nerve pathways. We have um, gut pathways. So gut, our gut uh, bacteria releases uh, signals to our brain to signal that we're hungry. So we have the gut pathway, we have um, different uh, signals that our stretch receptors, even in our GI tract can send to our brain to say, hey, you know, we haven't felt food coming in for a long time. And so these pathways all kind of go to your brain and make you seek food. And if you think about it, it also hits on the cravings pathway. So when you are starving yourself. And a lot of women can relate to this. Okay, When you are starving yourself, say, out of, you know, you're on a crash diet, you will start to notice your craving pathway being activated as well, that not only do you seek food, but you're also seeking comfort from food. So you're, you'll are you want to snack more. You'll want more sweet, fatties, processed foods, uh, because that cravings pathway gets recruited because they're like, oh, okay. She, you know, this lady is not eating enough. We've already sent her the hormonal signals. We'll already send her the neuronal signals. Now we're going to hijack the dopamine pathway. So now she gets cravings and we can protect ourselves from starvation.
0: Mm. So essentially what you're saying is that hunger is incredibly complex. Hunger is not just, oh, I'm feeling hunger. Yeah. I mean, I'm just feeling hungry but there is a biological drive to feed. There is uh, a gut hormone component, whether it's CCK or, uh, you know, a handful of other hormones. There's a, a vagal component and a stretch component, which I love in your book. You said the the raw veggie test, Yeah, which is, is funny. Maybe we'll, we'll mention that. What do you think is the easiest lever to pull, um, for an individual to lower their hunger? Again, when we think about optimal body composition, you do it does require caloric restriction. Yeah. What are the ways that we can pull these multiple levers to help mitigate hunger?
1: So what I talk about in the book is that it's not our fault um, that we are so hungry and craving all the time, really just craving all the time. And that some of the things that we can do to reduce our cravings for unhealthy foods is to change our gut. Um, If you're trying to change your gut microbiome, so the trillions of bacteria that live inside your intestines that pull the strings on your hunger and cravings, you're going to have to change what you eat, what you input into your body. So what i talk about is replacing foods with um, other foods instead of just talking about restriction which is really hard the dopamine pathway does not like you to restrict something that it's craving because it will just make the craving stronger and stronger and stronger so unless you retrain it or replace the foods with something else that's similar you're always going to have those cravings um so Simplest, one of the simplest things I talk about is matching your eating with circadian rhythms. That's a very easy way to start to retrain your hunger and craving pathways to be in tune with what your cell needs and what your brain needs. So 80% of our genes work on circadian rhythms. Um, our light is the strongest source, but food and temperature is a second and third. And so when you time your food appropriately, you can start to rewire those signals, start getting, um, so for example, stop eating two to three hours before bed so that the body can start to know, oh, food's not coming in, light's not coming in, time to shut down, renew, rewire, kind of like, putting your brain to sleep. We know how important that is. There's also good body of literature that your microbiome, your gut bacteria and your cells need that break from food as well. So that's one thing, changing your dietary habits, including decreasing simple sugars and carbohydrates. Like if you can stop that insulin roller coaster, you know, that whole crash Uh, First, you get the big high and then you have the roller coaster crash. Um, You can really start to improve the things that you crave. And then, you know, I'll say your favorite, uh, increasing your protein intake. Protein is a really great way of inducing your satiation hormones, like the hormones that tell you that you're full, the neuropeptide Y, the CCK, the things that tell you I'm full, the um, leptin, these are things that are actively um, activated when you eat protein. So that's why a lot of people, when they're working on retraining their cravings, lower their simple processed sugar, increase their protein intake, start to add in foods that uh, communicate in a positive way to the brain, including glucosinolates is one um, class of uh, foods that I put in the book that They communicate with the brain um, in a positive way. You want to be eating things that support positive thinking, so dopamine-rich foods, serotonin-rich foods, um, and that's how you start to train. I love
0: that. I love that. You mentioned this idea of circadian biology, and a circadian rhythm is typically that 24-hour cycle in which we are all accustomed to. There's a huge push for intermittent fasting and fasting. And the question becomes, which I I believe I know your answer, Uh do you think that there is benefit for fasting in the morning or how do you recommend individuals implement a, a fasting or intermittent feeding schedule? What would be specifics?
1: So um, intermittent fasting is very personal. It's like exercise. You can say, um, you know, some people run ultra marathons and other people do yoga and it has different benefits. So same with fasting. There are people who do three day fasts. There are people who do overnight fasts and they're totally different things, and they have different effects on our metabolism, and they can have different benefits. And so what I say is that if you're looking for something to just start, and you want to improve your metabolic markers, you say you're fasting insulin, you want to improve your cholesterol levels, you want to improve your physique, um, The first thing I would do is start to fast according to circadian rhythms. And so what I mean by that is that you don't just roll out of bed and eat a Pop-Tart and orange juice, you know, like thousands of years ago. Your body's programmed to seek food, exercise, or at least get a little break. So even when you look at coffee, coffee is best consumed 60 to 90 minutes after waking, Food is best consumed 60 to 90 minutes after waking. And so you can stretch it a little longer than that if you'd like, but you really don't want to just get out of bed and have um, a big uh, cup of coffee and a bagel, which is what a lot of people in the modern world do. And then the harder part, and people hate this part because our culture is so anti, is to cut out the evening alcohol, to cut out the evening snacks, to cut out the the food that's two to three hours before bed as much as possible. It doesn't have to be a complete fast, but if you can do that, the more you can fast before bedtime, the better your metabolic markers will be. So doing a fast based on what maybe you would have done when, uh, if you were alive a thousand years ago, or when you go camping, like for example, I just went to Peru, Machu Picchu, and we camped, and we did the five day hike, um, And I kept thinking about circadian rhythms through the whole day because it was when it was sundown, that was when you had your last meal, because it's not like you're, you know, watching Netflix and eating, um, popcorn, right? So you pretty much end your meals at the end of the day shortly after sundown was how we did it. And then, um, Pretty much ate nothing except for tea or water until the next morning. And then the in the morning, you just don't. We didn't just roll out of bed and have a big breakfast ready for us. We, you know, packed up our things. We got ready for the day. We got we went to a place um, to sit down to have a quick breakfast. But it was at least sixty to ninety minutes. And I thought, wow, this is exactly how circadian rhythm biology works, and it makes sense because except for, you know, the last 100 years, we were on that kind of schedule and our bodies uh, function optimally. Uh, when we release melatonin before bed, it's not just our brain that has melatonin receptors. There's in our pancreas, in our gut, there are receptors that say, oh, it's time to turn down. It's time to focus on repair renewal because it's um, bedtime now.
0: So in an ideal world, basically, individuals are not pushing a fasting to 11 or noon, assuming you wake up really late. Uh, (laughs) What you're saying is this is really shifting the window to when the sun is up, this is the time that you should be eating. And I'm guessing that when the sun goes down, this is the time that you would stop. Therefore, shifting the fasting and feeding window earlier may be of some benefit. But what you said was it wasn't just necessarily about the circadian biology, which again is that twenty-four hour uh, pattern, but it's the impact on the microbes, the gut microbiome, and that's what I think is so fascinating. When it, you know, when we think about the gut microbiome and the interface with mood, you mentioned something called psychobiotics. Mm-hmm. Tell us what, what is a psychobiotic? What do we know? What do we know from the literature?
1: Yeah, this is the area that's so shocking that you can actually change someone's mood simply by changing their gut bacteria. I think this kind of, um, world has opened up, uh, the science. So for example, now we know that if you transplant gut bacteria from a depressed human into a mouse and a a non-depressed human into another mouse, the mice will display depression um, when they get the microbiome from the depressed individual. Same thing has been shown with schizophrenia. You can actually create a situation where just the gut microbiome is transplanted into an animal. And the animal starts to display characteristics of schizophrenia. And that to me is just so crazy because now we have it with um, Alzheimer's. We're looking at autism. We're looking at cognitive, you know, just cognitive decline, Um, not only just mood disorders, but we have anxiety, uh, depression. So what we're seeing is there is a key aspect of mental health that's located in that gut microbiome. And if you transplant it from one person to another, we could potentially change their entire mental state. Now, in humans, it's been shown in case studies. Mostly there's case reports. Um, You need obviously larger studies, but it's tough because transplanting a gut microbiome from one person to another um, has a host of Issues, um, including the fact that the FDA has banned it, except for in um, uh, in cases of severe gastrointestinal uh, intestinal, um, infections. Uh, the you know repeated C difficile is the only is the only indication right now for a um, microbiome fecal transplant from one person to the other.
0: Why do you think that, or you know, what does the evidence show? as to why. Why do we yeah. see significant mood changes? Is it um, a neurotransmitter issue? Uh, are these things crossing the blood-brain barrier? What What do we believe that the interface is?
1: Yeah. Th- um, and this is what's so interesting. So there's a few different theories. Obviously, we know that the vagus nerve connects our gut um, to our brain. That is the strongest um, neurological connection. So the neuro neurological pathway from the gut to the brain, the direct link is the vagus nerve. But now we know that there's multiple other pathways. And one of the strongest pathways that we know is through our immune system. And so um, when our gut bacteria produce a very magical compound called a short chain fatty acid, so it's a very short chain of fatty acids um, in a certain um, sequence the body takes that information and it creates all kinds of changes. So it's anti-inflammatory. It goes to the brain. It changes the immune system. So it's basically like a calming veil um, of all of your inflammation and it boosts your mood. So we now know that increasing the short-chain fatty acid production through gut bacteria is one of the strongest ways to achieve mood change, achieve you know anti-inflammatory benefits, immune benefits. The big question is, how do we do that? Because we know that you can transplant bacteria, the good bacteria from one person to another. Um, that's the fastest way to do it. But are there other ways that we can get more short-chain fatty acids, that we can get more bacteria that create short-chain pa- fatty acids, to boost our mood, to make us, you know, fitter, to make us feel less inflamed, uh, basically change our entire metabolism uh, from that pathway. That's the most promising.
0: And how can an individual increase their short chain fatty acids? Uh, fat, what are the foods, or yeah. the actions? One yeah. of
1: the best actions is free. It's exercise. Exercise is one of the most potent drivers of short chain fatty acid production from gut bacteria so i always always say that best probiotic is exercise you're um Making the gut bacteria that produce short-chain fatty acids super happy They produce a lot of short-chain fatty acids. They produce more of themselves So you're increasing the amount of bacteria and the amount of short-chain fatty acids So we think one of the key anti-inflammatory effects of exercise actually is mediated through that gut bacterial pathway Um, So exercise is number one probably I would say um, out of anything Um, And then of course diet is equal or at least Similar to exercise in creating short chain fatty acids. So there's um, many foods uh, including you know prebiotic fiber, probiotic fiber, that um, feed that good gut bacteria, you know, quote unquote good gut bacteria that's creating short chain fatty acids. And we know that um, one of the some of the short chain fatty acids are directly sent, you know, to the brain to change our mood. So we ha- know a lot about um, short chain of fatty acids. There's also, of course, uh, an increase in dopamine or serotonin that can change the mood in the brain. Um, and there's interplay between the neurotransmitters and the short chain fatty acids to create a change in your mood. Um, so when you say food creates mood, uh, you're seeing like a huge milieu of changes in the gut that's being translated into the brain. We know there's at least four different ways um, that they communicate with each other. And there's new ways discovered um, all the time. And so I got interested in it because when I was in medical school, we had an immunology um Kind of small group session where we talked about why there was such an increase in autoimmune, inflammation, allergic diseases in the modern world. And the leading theory was because of the changes of our gut microbiome leading to immune and body changes. And I thought, oh my God, that's crazy. Like we're doing something very wrong. To our gut microbiome because it's creating all kinds of diseases, obesity, diabetes, but also autoimmune diseases and allergies.
0: Hmm, that's fascinating. Where do you recommend individuals get uh, prebiotics as it relates to food? The prebiotic, probiotic. I'm just I'm curious <laughs> as to what the the listener could do, and and also how much. Wait, yeah. So what's uh-huh. um,
1: probiotic foods is Well, better studied. Okay, so probiotic foods are fermented foods. Things like yogurt, um, cottage cheese, uh, then there's things that are non dairy, like apple, you know, the apple cider vinegar with that's uh, non pasteurized, the mother with the mother, you know, and then kombucha, there's kimchi, there's natto, there's a host of fermented foods. What we found is in new studies that the higher your intake of fermented foods, the more bacteria and the more diverse the bacteria become in your gut. And so in the beginning, it was like um, when I would, would talk to people, I, you know, people I work with, I would say, oh, you know, start to get some yogurt into your diet. But now the new studies show that you can really push this like four to seven servings, and you're really getting the highest level of microbiome changes. And the problem with probiotics is there's really no consensus on which probiotic, what dose, you know, which we're still working on that. And I still think that getting it through foods because of uh, the complex structure of probiotics and the way the foods kind of carry it in a net just you think about like a matrix and the probiotics are in that food, it gets to where it needs to go faster and more effectively than just taking a pill version. So I love increasing the amount of fermented foods in your diet. It can be as easy as yogurt. It can be as fun and complex as you know making your own kefir, um, trying all kinds of new fermented foods. Mm. And then, oh yeah, go ahead.
0: No, no, no. Go ahead. And then please.
1: prebiotics is really you know, a matter of eating more vegetables because prebiotic fiber is really the fertilizer for your gut. It's a food that your gut bacteria eat. And then when they eat prebiotics, they can make postbiotics and all these beautiful things happen. The short chain fatty acids get produced. Um, you can eat that through um, vegetables in general, especially the stalks, But Um, especially in things like artichokes and asparagus and uh, chicory root. There's a special prebiotic called inulin that is actually seems to be the magical prebiotic that produces more of the bacteria that even help in weight loss, which is so interesting because I think people are really, really interested in newer natural ways to control our weight. One of the best ways is to get prebiotics like inulin in your diet.
0: Yeah. I, I think it's so fascinating to think that humans can survive and thrive on a multitude of different dietary patterns. And, you know, I've been uh, reading a lot about urolithin A. I'm, I'm sure yeah. you've heard about urolithin A. Timeline is uh, by far and away, I think it's uh, going to be the next big thing. But one of the things that, that's so interesting about urolithin A is that it's an elagitanin right? So mm-hmm. whether you're eating pomegranate or you're eating walnut or whatever it is that you're eating that has these olagitannins, only 40% of the population can actually make this compound in the gut microbiome to help support mitophagy or whatever it is, the the desired outcome. I'm curious as if you've ever read anything as it relates to are people ingesting uh, things like chicory root or ingesting things like Jerusalem artichoke But individuals don't have the same microbiome response because of the current foundation of whatever it is that their microbiome is.
1: Yeah, and I think that's where you pose, that's where the problem is. And for example, with the evidence of um, probiotics improving mood, for example, it's so variable. The studies are like, some people get a huge boost in their mood. Um, It's stronger than antidepressants. And in other studies, it's not as strong. And we think that part of it is the host, right? Like you you may have a very strong, diverse microbiome. And so when I give you prebiotics, I give you probiotics, your mood instantly changes. But if you're someone who has a depleted um, gut microbiome, you may have different effects on, uh, from, so it's not just like you add this and now you get this result. What we are realizing is you really have to systematically heal the gut, um, improve the, uh, bacteria, uh, both in diversity and number so that it can start functioning for you. And again, like exercise, when we talk about exercise, we always talk about it in a way that it improves your physique, it improves your muscle mass, it improves your brain health. Um, but one of the strongest things it does is it improves that gut microbiome, which is what we're trying to really foster so that we can get all these effects.
0: Special thank you to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this episode of the show. Inside Tracker is absolutely amazing. They have made huge strides in adding some biomarkers that are critical for health, well-being, and longevity. For example. If you do not know your blood level of ApoB or insulin, you should. And Inside Tracker now offers this. So head on over to InsideTracker.com and you can select one of the packages. You'll get 20% off the entire store. And again, you will not only figure out what your baseline blood labs are, but where you need to go. For example, what does your daily action plan need to be? What kind of exercise? What kind of personalized guidance do you need? Inside Tracker will offer this to you. It's a great company. It is a great product. I highly, highly recommend it. So, InsideTracker.com slash Dr. for 20% off. Thank you to Element for sponsoring this episode of the show. Listen, if you are a longtime listener, then you know how much I love Element. I am drinking citrus salt right now as we speak. Element is an amazing electrolyte drink. It contains science-backed electrolyte ratios. It has a thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium and 60 milligrams of magnesium. No junk, no sugar, no coloring, nothing artificial. This is an amazing product, especially during the summer. If you are finding that you are dehydrated, getting headaches, getting muscle cramps, whatever it is, this is amazing. Again, when you sweat, you don't want to replace water. You want to replace sweat. And I don't know about you, but I do not plan on drinking sweat right now. Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single serving packs free with any Element order. You can try all eight flavors or share Element with your friends and family, which I do often. In fact, they leave every time like it's a holiday. You can go to drinkelement.com slash a Dr. Lion. That's drinkelement.com dot com. That's l m n t dot com slash dr lion. And by the way, if you do not like it, you will have a no questions asked refund. So it is totally risk free. And that's through the influence on short chain fatty acids. Does it matter what kind of exercise, um, or is it the yeah contraction of the skeletal muscle? What, yeah, what is it's it?
1: it's literally we don't even exactly know why, you know, what what signals it's getting from where. So we know that the contraction helps. We know that the blood flow helps. We know that um, both um, weight training and uh, uh, cardio or whatever the opposite of that is um, mm-hmm. will stimulate Um, That change, but we don't know exactly if there's an optimal type of exercise. Um, We do think that having a regular exercise regimen, so when we're talking about, you know, whether we're doing steps or we're talking about uh, 20 to 30 minutes a day, that seems to be the amount you need to start changing your gut microbiome in a positive way as well. Um, And then the other, you know, thing I see people really noticing when they change their microbiome is that their food sensitivities change. Uh, People who couldn't tolerate dairy, people who couldn't tolerate, you know, certain food items are able to do that. And then their autoimmune issues improve. So there's so much more than just uh, mood and physique. It's like your overall health in general will improve when you improve this.
0: And that that, of course is so critical. The the challenge I think becomes, and I'm I'm really curious as to how you do this in your clinic. We had the uh, head of Cedar sinai uh, Microbiome Institute, Suzanne Devkoda on, incredible. So she is uh, really paving the way on some of this. And we were talking and she said, there's so many different bugs in this gut microbiome that the testing that we have Is is really lacking? Yeah, you know. So I'm curious as to, you know, we obviously we use some basic GI map testing in our clinic, and we do things of that nature. But the question then becomes: Is how do we really get a handle uh, to look at a baseline? What do you guys do? What are your thoughts? Where do you think the emerging evidence is going as it relates to clinical practice?
1: I I agree with you. The clinical practice piece of this is the most difficult because there is no good test. Um, Or or let's put it this way. There is no reproducible um, gold standard when it comes to um, gut microbiome testing. And so um, unlike, you know, just testing your vitamin D level, we can't just know um, what's going on. It's symptomology based um, and even the improvement really now is symptom-based. You can watch the changes longitudinally. Like if someone is having more uh, bifidobacterium, for example, in their stool, you can pretty much know that they have more growing in their gut now. So from point A to point B, it can be helpful, but there's really no good, you know, slam dunk test. And I think that's where the science is going though. I think if we could, like I just gave the example- Someone out there, if you could say, hey, uh, Dr. Lyon and Dr. Shah started with, you know, this many colonies of bifidobacterium and we got them to um, double, triple, quadruple uh, quintuple that that itself would be really great information for us because we know that Bifidobacterium, for example, is one of the short chain fatty acid producing bacteria. And so if I knew that I could change that by five times by consuming this or doing this, or, you know, that's I think where the science needs to move is to really give us better direction on into bio individuality in people and how um, one action can create uh, better change. So I think that's where it's going.
0: That would be incredible. And it it just made me think, you know, individuals that are on SSRIs, you know, when you you talk about the psychobiotics, uh, it would be so fascinating to see if there are any medications, you know, in the future over the next 10 years that begin to combine this um, psychobiotic with actual psychopharmacology would probably be pretty life-changing, Uh, for people. You know what I mean? There's
1: actually a really good study looking at SSRIs combined with psychobiotics, showing that the psychobiotics actually improve even the function of the SSRI. So I think it's uh, in patients that are being treated. Of course, everybody has to check with their own physician, but I think it makes sense to really try to boost that gut bacteria, especially the strains that will help your mood um, so that you can Uh, Combine forces. So for example, we know um, lactobacillus, like in yogurts, for example, and cottage cheese, and then the bifidobacterium. Uh, We know that acromantia, there's certain bacterial strains that are psychobiotic. And why not employ these in our treatment protocol so that we can help? um, Again, it's individual. So you have to check with, you have to know how healthy the person is. They have to be eating healthy, doing the exercise, doing the work. But then on top of that, uh, really increasing these bacterial colonies can help them.
0: Do you, so if, for example, someone has low acromancia, mm-hmm. could an individual just take acromancia and then push the needle? What, when you're uh, looking through, yeah, uh, a test that you know you've got this patient sitting in front of you and they are having GI issues, they're having mood issues. Are there a handful of strains that you're looking for that when you're low, you're concerned and you know exactly what you're going to deploy?
1: Um, the science is not there yet. Um, we can't really say, oh, just add add some acromantia, add some bifidobacterium. you know there's um, this is still to be determined. Um, what we do know right now, is that if you increase your um, gut bacterial diversity and number, you will see the benefits and you can see the benefits in as little as three days and um, over a few weeks and months time. And so I think for me, what it says is, hey, if you can change your diet, you can change your exercise, you can concentrate on really improving your gut health by not taking antibiotics if you don't need it, not using um, gut bacterial, you know, killers if you can do it, uh, we do know that that creates good outcomes. Um, So where the data stands right now is that if you can figure out where your gut health is lacking or where your diet or your exercise, where your lifestyle is lacking and start to fix that and improve your gut health, you will see improvements in your mood. You will see improvements in your metabolic markers. But to say um, we're not 100% sure right now, based on the studies, which probiotic should I be taking if I'm anxious? What about if I'm just tired all the time? What about if I'm, you know, perimenopausal? Because all of that data, we have that data about which bacteria can um, be different, but it's not as easy as just giving them that bacteria.
0: Mm. And I think that that's really important uh, to point out. And, you know, you're talking about this in the book. There's a whole list of different kinds of foods and strategies to help diversify the gut microbiome, which which I think is easy to do and profound because it it can create such a a positive impact, we hope, in the body. Individuals that live together, do they have the same microbiome?
1: The best way, um, you know, we always say we're the the sum or the the best of the five people we spend the most time with. Um, That absolutely goes for gut bacteria. Um, So for example, twins who are separated at birth, um, their gut microbiome looks nothing like each other. It looks much closer to their family that they live with than the biological twin. And so we know that there's a lot to be said about the people you're spending time with, sharing food with, sharing you know, microbes with. Um, in fact, so much so that athletic performance is based on gut microbiome. So if you spend time, share food with, share microbiome with someone who has the athletic prowess that you want, you will start to get some of that gut bacteria. And so that opens up a whole world, right? Like, okay, really? how do I get close to LeBron James with, you know, even though I don't live with him, um, if he gave you his gut microbiome, um, you could start, you know start getting some of the athletic prowess uh, that he has. So it's really exciting. Uh, it really kind of gives more credence to the fact that you are, so much like the people you spend time with. And I think we tend to um, think of that as just like a mental health thing, but it's definitely a bacterial thing. Um, and also it tells you, you have little kids and um, I do yes, too, I do. as a mom, um, it's very important to share food with your child. If you're healthy, you know, not sick, don't have cavities, you know, you know, you're not, you don't have a, uh, a open wound. Because you're building in that very, um, in that especially in the early window of their immune system and their gut development, you can really strengthen it by introducing healthy gut microbes um, to it.
0: I think what I'm hearing you say is Tom Brady is going to be wondering why people are always stealing off his plate after this yes, podcast comes out. Exactly,
1: <laughs> um, or his um, toilet.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, Yeah, that poor Tom, uh, Tom. But it also makes me think it should inspire individuals within a home to be the healthiest version of themselves because it's not just the individual, but the individual's impact on, say, a spouse or a child. And you know, the next layer to that makes me think. And, you know, our military, our military spends lots of time, close contact and gut health is, or microbiome assessment is not something that's done. We're definitely working on changing that. And then the next layer is athletic performance. Yeah. And first responders and those people that are all, uh, as it it relates to being in part in a team, also makes me think uh, mood challenges, just all of the things, potentially this gut microbiome, this mood gut connection, which you talk about. Maybe even exponentially more impactful than we are aware of. What about there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, PMS and training and, you know, gut health. Is there a role that gut health plays in perimenopause, mood changes, PMS, or even andropause?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, we always, I always, um, it's very eloquent the gut-immune hormone-brain connection. It's not eloquent at all, I'm just saying. In the studies, they talk about this, you know, it's a neuroendocrine immune um, interaction that's happening in the gut all the time. And so when you're looking at what we talk about as hormonal imbalance, or we're talking about what's happening to the liver and the gut, what during um, perimenopause, we're really, it's that interaction, you know, as you may have heard, and a lot of people have heard your estrogen um, levels and how you detox estrogen out of your body. It has a lot to do with the gut bacteria that's present. Um, we have this thing called estrobilome in our gut that helps us with our estrogen balance. So we know, for example, for me personally, I'll tell you that what I thought were all hormonal symptoms because I was a young, busy mom. And I thought, Oh my God, my cortisol is off. My estrogen is I'm estrogen dominant. I'm, I was reading all these things online. Nothing I had learned in medical school, but what i realized after years of kind of looking into this that it was my gut that was really imbalanced and when i started to fix that the hormones the immune system the skin the metabolism all kind of fixed itself so starting with that is where i would tell people to start if you're feeling tired if you're feeling like your you know hormones are off um, that's where you should start because most of the hormonal symptoms that we're feeling are coming from um, that gut interaction with the hormones. Um, And absolutely, perimenopause is a doozy. And we need to talk more about it because not enough people are talking about menopause and perimenopause and what happens not only just to our gut, but to our mood, to our metabolism, to um, uh, our entire bodies during this time.
0: And do you think that the gut microbiome, if, and this is a really tough question <laughs> that you can say pass or, or uh, you know, whatever you want to say, what person, you know, oftentimes when we think about body composition, um, you know, I I personally think about calories in, calories out with a, an appropriate um, macronutrient balance. It would be challenging to not address or not um, acknowledge that the gut microbiome probably Plays a role in whether it's calorie absorption or calorie utilization, and I'm curious as to what percentage of obesity or or these kinds of um, difficulty losing weight is related to the gut microbiome versus, say, a calories in calories out. And it's obviously yeah. probably all together. But I'm just curious in terms of hierarchy of importance.
1: Yeah. Um, okay. I'll give you an example from the research because I think this can frame the conversation. If you give mice um, gut bacteria from an obese human, and you give the other group of mice um, gut bacteria from a lean human, and you let them eat freely, the gut bacteria, the, the mice that received, the obesogenic gut bacteria become obese. And the mice that received the microbiome from the lean individuals stay lean. They're allowed to eat freely. They're allowed to exercise freely. They can do whatever they want. And so it paves, it just tells you, oh, whoa, there is a complex communication happening. Like we said, it's like the hormones and the immune system um, and the nervous system are all communicating through this kind of central, if you think about it, kind of a central command center. And so to me, I mean, when you hear that, and I'm a believer too, like if you um, change your diet, you're eating the appropriate calories, the appropriate macronutrients, staying away from ultra processed foods that you too can change, uh, that anyone um, has the ability to change uh, their weight balance. But when you hear that, research is just mind blowing to me that there's interplay. So what's happening is there's genetic changes that are happening on the um, epigenetic level. There's hormonal signals that are being sent. um, And there's uh, these anti-inflammatory, like the short chain fatty acid thing that we were talking about really is a central player in weight as well. So that just is just tells me there's a whole world out there that we haven't explored yet for weight loss and, you know, these GLP-1 agonists are just the beginning of gut-based um, hormonal modulators of weight.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I'm i cur- curious as to what are your thoughts on... So the GLP-1 agonists are ozempic. We're hearing a lot about it. Uh, semaglutide, you know, also known as ozempic, also known as Wagovi. Do you use them in the practice? What do you... Do you have a, a stance on uh, the effectiveness, the input on the gut microbiome? What are your thoughts?
1: I think it's so interesting because, you know, it just, it stimulates GLP-1. And what GLP-1 is exactly this conversation that we're having is that our gut sends signals to our brain that we're full, we're hungry, and we stop eating. So what I love about it is that it's turning our attention to saying like, oh, wait, it's not just, rest- you know, Don't go to the McDonald's. You can't just tell a patient like, oh, stop doing what you're doing. It's about the hormonal signals that they're getting. And a lot of people, it's altered. And, um, you know, if we could give them a gut microbiome transplant, amazing. But until then, there are going to be, uh, you know, medications and other things that uh, can do this. I don't have a moral stance on it because I've realized that you can't have, as a physician, I can't have a moral stance on people who are carnivores or vegans or vegetarian or um, gluten-free. Like it is a, a medical choice that you make with your physician. So if someone comes to me and they say um, I'm taking this, it's not like I'm like, oh, well, you're taking the easy way out or like, or I'm not saying um, you know, I'm not giving it out. Like it's um, a easy solution for everyone. I think that it's super, super individual, but like a lot of obesity medicine uh, physicians have pointed out to the general public is that, Hey, you wouldn't deny blood pressure medication to someone who's tried everything, but can't get their blood pressure under control. Like you wouldn't say, Oh, sorry, you need to try three more diets before I'll put you on a medication. Same thing with, um, someone who had a heart attack like you can say yes change your diet change your exercise but i'm also going to give you aspirin whatever so i think it right. makes sense that to put it in the arsenal for patients who are obese should the general public use it that's a different conversation
0: yeah i i think that uh, what you're pointing out is is true uh, as a physician it is definitely not our place to judge and second of all the idea that these GLP1 agonists that we're Targeting weight loss, focused on the gut above and beyond just uh, the impulse to eat, uh, whether it's hunger or cravings. I think that these drugs have a huge, uh, ben- I mean, I, I think that they're very beneficial. Whether it's uh, semaglutide or trizepatide, I think that these drugs are definitely going to pave the way and highlight a lot about what you're talking about: this gut, mood, gut. Weight connection this as a central focus this gut microbiome which ultimately is what is going to be leveraged in these medications or at least in part and I do want to mention people are saying oh well I am concerned about trying Ozempic or con- concerned about trying semaglutide because of its effect on muscle mass yes. I have scoured the literature I have not found one mechanism of action that shows that this GLP-1 agonist negatively affects skeletal muscle mass. So if you are training, as Dr. Amy is talking about, if you are eating a protein-optimized diet and taking semaglutide, obviously check with your physician, but there is typically no reason why an individual would be also losing muscle. Um, so I just want to... Yeah, lay I'm, that out I'm there curious kind of about
1: theory. your take in general. Um, that's a, actually a really good point because um, I think that's one of the uh projected downsides of using it in a non-obese or just using it in general. But um what are your views about uh the GLP1 agonist? I'm curious.
0: We use them all the time in the practice. Yeah. Um, and I, I I think that they are very advantageous. I think that there is a possibility to help reset hunger cues, browns, white fat. I think that they're also uh, very, very promising as it relates to uh, changing body composition with the right strategies.
1: Mm -hmm. uh, Yeah. yeah, And I I always feel that if there are ways, um, I I talk a lot about, you know, these natural, um, ways to control your appetite, for example, um, releasing GLP one, but also CCK neuropeptide Y leptin. There are actual studies that show that you can, um, like, augment the release of all of these satiation hormones. Um, so I talk a lot about, you know, what are the things you can be doing, the supplements, the foods, the activities, the, um, that you can feel more satiated, like something as simple as sleep increases your leptin levels by many fold. And so getting adequate sleep should be like the base of somebody who's trying to improve their body composition. Absolutely. And, you know,
0: when we, when you and I were on call, though we weren't on call together, I, every night, remember Night Float? Oh. You had to stay. I don't know if you guys ever, yes. Night Float is where you're up all night. It's part of the the deal in training. And I am telling you, I could not regulate my hunger at all. Yeah. I didn't care if it was high protein. You're up, you're not getting to sleep, even though you're, quote, supposed to be sleeping during the day. Uh, it, it doesn't really happen. I'm curious, as, as your time in clinical practice over a period of time, as, there been anything that just you've changed your mind on that has just mm-hmm. totally shocked you? Again, Amy, what I love about you is that you are a clinician in clinical practice.
1: Yeah. Well, so, what you'll I think what you'll appreciate about this um, is because I think you talk a lot about this. Um, is that when I was growing up, I was vegetarian uh, because that's how I. Gr- I mean, I was born into a family that was uh, following um, a kind of a. Uh, a lifestyle practice called Jainism, which um, is, I'm actually very familiar with. Yeah, that. so no harm to any animals or plant life if you can. And so, I um, really did start to look more into being a vegan or being um, more plant based. And I think what I realized that for myself personally when I um, started to add more protein to my diet I found it really difficult to find a lot of vegan non-dairy um, uh, plant sources and there are so many and it's you can be very creative and um, there and not to say that there's there's so many even... Bodybuilders. So, what I did is I just, I said, you know what? I've never eaten meat. I don't want to eat meat, but I think that for me, now that I've fixed my gut health, I can start incorporating um, dairy sources of um, protein, some um, egg sources of protein, and kind of go to the lacto ovo. Um, So, I've changed my stance on dairy. I've changed my stance on eggs because I've realized, wow, even the American Heart Association says, you know what? if you're, um, vegetarian, you want to eat eggs, that's actually really healthy. It's heart healthy. I mean, they've changed their stance. for them to say that is um, a big step. And same with dairy, low fat dairy has become, or just dairy in general has had a really bad, um, reputation over the years. And people say, Oh, don't eat dairy. They're so inflammatory. And I think what I've realized is that, um, the data doesn't really support that. Doesn't support that at all. Yeah. We eat dairy all the
0: time in our house and we eat uh, low fat dairy. We do try to keep our overall fat content, or at yeah. least I do. Yeah. Low, the kids kind of are. Yeah.
1: They're on their own journey. On their yeah.
0: own journey. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah but so it's changed I, me. um And even with gluten, I don't, I'm not, I, I don't feel like everyone needs to be gluten free and not everyone needs to be dairy free. Not, I mean, it's. Just ridiculous to tell an entire population of people, in my mind, ba- based on very little, no data, um, to say that they should be on gluten-free diet um, just just because, you know, that kind of thing. So I still watch change in nutrition over the last um, 20 years. And I think that to stay ahead of the trends, um, it's really hard because things are changing all the time. But those are a couple of things that I've changed in my life.
0: I love that. What I'm hearing you say is there's a lot more flexibility that perhaps start with the anchor of your own health, whether yeah. it's gut health, whatever, and there is more flexibility uh, as it relates to those kinds of things.
1: Yeah, I think that if your goal is to be happy, to um, look help uh, you know look better, especially through your older years for women, um, your goals might look different than they did you know when you're 15, 16, 25 even. Um, Mm -hmm. And so change that with your goals in mind. So my goals are good, better gut brain connection. Um, So improving your gut health, improving my brain health, um, improving my muscle mass as I age, and really keeping myself um, primed for longevity.
0: I love that. As it relates to gut health, do you believe or have you seen in your clinical practice, we use a lot of Zyfaxin? Um, you know, I think there's a lot of good data and that this is a medication for SIBO, which is not actually systemic, it's local. Do you think medications like that are um, effective or would you like to see a more natural approach to uh, somewhat of a gut microbiome reset?
1: That's a tough question. I think that we don't yet have a exact protocol for everyone. I think that gut health is like nutrition um, in that uh, there are some people who are going to uh, respond immediately through dietary changes. Um, There are people who are going to need medication. There are going to be people who need a combination approach. And I think the best things that people can start with is changing your diet, improving your circadian rhythm alignment. So getting sleep, getting sunlight, getting movement, and then fasting. Those are things that everyone can do to start and then see what's left. Like there's going to be people who need medical treatment for their mood, for their SIBO, for their, um, you know, GI illnesses. Um, but I think we start with the base and go from there for me, whenever I go back to the base for myself or for the people I work with, um, you know you really fix those things first and then move on from there
0: so you fix those things first and let's say um let's say an individual has some kind of pathogen whether it's a bug like entamoeba histolytica or something like that would you still say let's look at the fundamentals or are you going to treat and then build the fundamentals as you're doing it yeah do you think that the body can rid itself
1: i think um it depends on the situation like h pylori for example I mean, you have to treat it. I, I right. just think that- that's, We always treat it. Yeah, Absolutely. and it's like there are certain things that you can't really just let them um, kind of write it out. Um, SIBO is a tough one. I'm not sure. it's it, That one is really dependent on the person. Sometimes just doing a diet overhaul. Um, but if it's something that's been going on for years and years, or there's some part of their diet that they're, they're not willing to change. So for example, I had a patient- who was um, doing an amazing job with their diet and lifestyle, but could not quit the alcohol and alcohol was regular. And we now know that even at small doses, even at moderate amounts um, it can damage the gut microbiome as well as do, um, you know, we now know that it also creates um, negative brain changes and muscle, all kinds of changes. And so, we couldn't get past that. So there was a role for medication. There was a role for, um, but there's other people who can really just change their entire gut microbiome through a rapidly, a rapid and uh, extreme change in their diet and lifestyle. Um, you know, that nature study is so landmark. There's a nature study that says that they took two groups of individuals and um, and they had them rapidly change their diet over a course of 14 days. And they started to sequence their microbiome every day. And they th- saw that by day three of a completely different lifestyle and diet, that that group had already started to change their gut microbes. So it's really quick. Um, and you can start to see the changes very, very almost instantly.
0: That's, that's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. Um and that, that's where it's wonderful that you're a physician and you have the capacity to prescribe if you needed to yeah. or, you know, if you didn't and you were going to try a natural approach. And for those listeners, SIBO is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. It's something that I'm sure Dr. Amy sees all the time. I see it all the time. And it really does affect the way people feel and absorption, all of those things. Um, so that's uh, uh, really, really helpful that it is individual. Yeah. It is very much uh, as the individual. Uh, Last question. I know that you're in the middle of clinic, so I want to make sure that uh, we keep you on time. We had a little tech difficulties here. Who knows why, but it happens. Um, Why this book? So, your first book, which I love these titles, Why Am I So Effing Tired? And now this book, Why Am I So Effing Hungry? Was there something that happened or something that you saw where you said, you know what, I, I've got to figure this out? Is there a moment?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I my moment was when I um, was early in my practice. I had two – my kids were really young. They are toddlers. Um, I just felt out of control. and I was tired all the time. My um, hormones felt out of, of whack. I felt like I was always in this constant fight-or-flight mode And I had a very, very serious car accident one day when I was going to pick up my kids. And um, after that, I had to pause because um, the car was wrecked. I couldn't go to work. I was injured. And thankfully, I survived that accident. But what that taught me is like, you know, we don't have our whole lives like we may have just today. Today might be your last day tomorrow. And I Thought to myself, I need to fix my life. I need to be doing what I really want to be doing. I need to feel the way I want to feel. I need to, um, you know, live the life uh, instead of just saying, "Oh, well, I'm too busy to even make a change." And so, that really got me to thinking. Like, I, uh, what is it that I really have learned over the years that I want to share with people? And uh, those books really came out of the fact that. I was tired all the time. Here's what I did to change it. And then this brain gut immune phenomenon that's going on over the last 10 years really changed the way I think about the future of health. And I felt like there was nobody, there was no like place where it was put together for the people, so for someone to say, hey, let me go and try some of these things um, to improve my mood, to improve my hunger, to improve my body, that you know, they might not get anywhere else.
0: Well, I love it. And the book is very well done. Where can people find it, find you, all the things?
1: Oh, thank you. Uh, I'm so, first of all, I'm so happy that um, we've, we've like virtually connected um I feel like we're so connected, but we don't get to connect as much in real life. So it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me uh, for taking the time. Um, my website is amymdwellness.com. Um, my um, Instagram is FastingMD. My, so, my other social media is at amysha md. And you guys will
0: link all of this stuff, and I'm going to see – Uh, Amy in real life in um, a few weeks. So maybe we'll even jump on a live if you guys have questions. Uh, Dr. Amy Shaw, thank you so much for making time. I know how busy you are. I greatly appreciate it.
1: Ah, Thanks so much for having me.
0: The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services including the giving of medical advice and no patient doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube or materials linked from a podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition. They may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and education.